The views and opinions expressed in the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the producers, the affiliates, or digital platforms hosting this podcast. All content is for the purposes of education, conjecture, and at times entertainment. We promote inclusiveness and diversity. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Into the Deep with Jay Casta. about today's guest, the highly decorated and multi-award-winning producer, writer, cinematographer, and director who happens to also be a New York Times and Los Angeles Times best-selling author. Today's guest is the living legend, Lionel Friedberg. For decades, his work has been featured everywhere from National Geographic to PBS, A&E, to AMC, The History Channel, and a myriad more. For nearly 60 years in the film industry, specializing in documentaries, Lionel's extraordinary career has exposed him to the incredible wonders and cultures of our planet. We talk about so much in this episode, like how Lionel was born in South Africa and how traumatic it was growing up in the apartheid era which was a catalyst for his family to move to Central Africa, where he would go on to begin his career working in the first television station in where is now modern-day Zambia. We also talk about a time when he was struck by a life-threatening illness and how his efforts to find a way to save his own life took him back to Africa, where he encountered the age-old rituals and powerful healing methods of African shamans. Lionel believes the mysterious ways of the shaman have much to teach us that experience led him to author one of his newest books entitled Forever in My Veins, How Film Led Me to the Mysterious World of the African Shaman. So, join me as we seek light and journey into the deep with Lionel Friedberg. Enjoy. Lionel, thank you so much for joining me. Um, if you can, share who you are and what it is you do with our listeners. Well, Jay, I've been in the film industry for the last um, a very, very long time. Um, like five, five and a half decades, nearly 60 years, in fact. I'm now in my late 70s. And uh, I grew up in South Africa. Uh, and I grew up uh, as a child during the apartheid era in South Africa, which was... Uh, traumatizing in many ways, or, uh, even as a child, one was very aware of the fact that you had this very divisive society around you. You know, right. even as a kid, I was very conscious of that. And um, so eventually my parents, my father was an immigrant from Latvia and he emigrated to, to Africa, married my mother. She was South African. And, you know, he uh, eventually said, um, this, this is not, this is not the place to live uh, under this system. So he left South Africa, and he moved to Central Africa to a place that was called, at that time, Northern Rhodesia. It was a British colony. Today, it's now the Republic of Zambia. So I went along with them because my dream was always to make movies. And what I really wanted to do was, you know, I used to go to the to the movies every Saturday as, as a child. And I saw all those amazing Tarzan movies and all of those things. And I wanted to do that. You know, that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> 
Now, when they moved to Central Africa, I thought, wow, what a wonderful opportunity this is. I mean, talk about being naive. (laughs) Anyway, I finished my high school. My mother said, you should stay here, get a degree, go to university. And I said, no, 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 I'm going with you guys. And I was an only, only child. And I want to make movies about where you're going to. And of course, when I arrived there, you know, there was nothing except one or two copper mining towns. Oh. My father became a manager of a little business there. He took a job as a, his trade was a, as a watchmaker. Oh, Those no kidding. When, when watches had little moving butts. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and uh, so he went up there and I suddenly thought, what have I done? Um, and then like manna from heaven, a miracle happened. One day advertised in the local, in the local rag and the local newspaper up there was an advertisement for staff for a new television station. They were opening up the first TV station in Central Africa. Mm. And, um, and I, I didn't, I, I said, I, I will lick the floors clean. I'll do whatever <laughs> you want. You've got to give me a job. <laughs> and fortunately they did. So in 1961, um, I began my career in television in Central Africa, we did extraordinary things. In the mornings, we had educational broadcasts for local kids because the local black kids in the in the surrounding areas, you know, there was a shortage of teachers. Hmm. Uh, we had programs for them in vernacular languages. And in the afternoon, we had what was called cultural programs, hmm. uh, which was basically groups of, of local people coming in with grass skirts and drums and making music and dancing. Wow. And... Uh, it was extraordinary. And at night, we had Leave it to Beaver and I Love Lucy and, you know, everything for, for, for the white audience. So I lived in this sort of, you know, triple world, this mm. triple cultural world. And so that was my background. But my dream was always to come to Hollywood and make uh, movies here, which is eventually came to but but that's 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 the background and for the last uh many decades i've been specializing my, my originally i started off as a dp director of photography cinematographer on feature films this is after my days in central africa um but i began to specialize in in documentaries and that's what i've been doing for a long long time and that brought me on my journey which is what this book is about um the through line of the book is meeting a sh- an, a shaman many 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 years ago, and I, I I think it's important for me to tell you how and why I met this little old lady in her little mud hut, living in the middle of the bush in Central Africa. After I worked in this television station for four years, the country became independent. Britain was giving away its all its colonies. Yeah, and so Northern Rhodesia became Zambia. And when that happened, the new government came to power. They said they nationalized the station. They made it. Uh, um, they, they, they made it a public station. And they said to all of us at the, at the studio, "You've done a great job. Thank you very much. But bye bye. We no longer need your services. Your jobs are going to go to local people now." Which we totally understood, of course. But my dilemma was, what do I do now? And we had a very very nice guy. He was not probably not much older than me who worked uh, for us. I was still living with my folks um, as what a houseboy, which was the term that we used those days. But anyway, David and I, David Fury was his name. He was a member of the Bemba tribal ethnic group. And I said to him after, after I got this pink slip, I said, David, a terrible thing has happened. Um, I've been fired and I don't know what to do. And he said, oh no, what are you going to do? So I said, I don't want to go back to South Africa where there was a film industry. 
I said, what am I going to do? And he said, don't worry. I will find you someone to help you. And I said, you know, like what? Who on earth do you know who can advise me what to do? And he said, don't worry. You know, and in Africa, you trust people. You, it's, it's very strange. Uh, it, it, it has a way of going about its business that is, defies all understanding. Hmm. And I got that immediately. So I said to him, okay, whatever it is that you have in mind, I'll go along with whatever you, know, you, you think is appropriate. And a few days later, he, we got into my little beat-up VW uh, Volkswagen and we drove on this dirt road to this little village and he said, this is the place. Here is the person who will help you. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Where is this? You know? And he knocked on the door of this little hut and this little old tiny little woman opened the door and beckoned us in. She didn't speak any English at all. She only spoke Bemba. And we went inside and she threw the bones for me. She was a shaman, you know, and yeah. the, the paradigm of, of, of the African shaman is they talk to your ancestors. Their ancestors talk to your ancestors. And the way the ancestors get the message across, across the paradigm of time and dimensions and, and, and place and space and whatever else is through bones. The way these little bones and stones and pebbles that they have in their set, the way these items fall is interpreted by the shaman. And the shaman will tell you what's wrong with you, what to do with your life, you know, why you lost your money, why your husband ran away, what your illness may be. It's all done through the bones and the stones. And that's what she did. And the most amazing thing was I didn't know what she was talking about. David was translating for me. Okay. I was trying to keep notes. But she kept saying all these incredible things. None of it made any sense. But as my life unfolded, everything that this little old woman told me all came true over the next 60 years. It wow. was incredible. You know, one of the things she said to, 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 to David, to, to me, through him, you know, was, tell him not to worry. One day he will cross the big water and he will go in that direction. And she points to the north. And there he will find a place where there are big lights, like the place where he works now. You know, when she said that, the big lights, like she, where he works now, she was talking about the lights in the television studio. And how could she have known that? How could she have known <laughs> anything? Yeah. And she said he will go there and, uh, and, that's, and he mustn't worry. And then she's, she threw out all kinds of other things, warnings, uh, predictions and all of that that came true. It was extraordinary. So the through line of my book, which I call "Forever in My Veins," because the pulse of Africa still is very much running right here in my veins. I feel it. It's very much. It, it defines me. You know, when you grow up in a in a continent like that, uh, um, you just glean so much from society, from the traditions, from the cultures, and so on, and so on. And, uh, and all of it has come true. It's been absolutely amazing. So these are the stories that I tell in this book. Oh, my gosh. It's beautiful. And, and, I, and I think that just the title of the book alone, you know, Forever in My Veins, you know, when you explain it that way and you put it in those words, like you yeah. said, a continent that rich in culture and, and, and art and just everything and, and knowledge. Absolutely. And antiquity, you know. Oh, 
you know, it, 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 it goes back and of course nothing is written down. It's all, it's all, it's all verbal. It's all passed down from generation to generation. Uh, there were no, you know, um, um, uh, uh, records kept, nothing like that, but it's been going for thousands and thousands of years. And, and these shamans, particularly the ones in the areas where I lived and worked, you know, uh, um, sub-equatorial, uh, south of the of the equator, that part of Africa, which is the area I know so well. I mean, these people have been practicing their craft for, for, for centuries, and it's passed down from one generation to another. You, you don't, you don't, decide to become a shaman, by the way, you are chosen. And, and, and according to tradition, the ancestors will choose that you must become a shaman. You start getting messages. The, 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 um, the things that I've heard from a lot of these people, they say is that you start getting headaches, you start getting ill, you can't sleep. And uh, you have this, you have this pounding in your head. And the only way to do that is that you've been called. And then you go to a shaman and, and the shaman throws the bones and says, yeah, what you need to do is to pay attention to these warning signs. And what you, what's happening is that you're being called by your ancestors to become one of these people. And then you sit at the foot of a master in the same way as a Hindu guru, you know, will sit at, a, at, a, at the foot of a master. These people do exactly the same. And it takes years before you are so-called ordained. I mean, that's not mm. ordination as such, but when you are traditionally brought into the tribe as a shaman, it takes years and years and years of learning and study uh, with someone who really knows what they're doing before you can practice your craft. Wow! So it's an it's an amazing it's an it's an amazing thing. And a lot of you know, it's what's interesting today, particularly in in South Africa, now that apartheid, thank God, has gone yeah. and open democratic society, not without its problems, but it is at least an open, free society. A lot of white uh, white people are are taking up. Uh, shamanism and learning the way of the African and a, a very, very good friend of mine who is actually a surgeon um, uh, lives just up the road from where I am here in, in, in California. He lives in a little, little town called Santa, Santa Barbara, which is where Prince Harry and Meghan now live. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and he has his practice there and, and he decided to study the ways of the shaman in South Africa. Uh, because he wanted to know when these guys go out into the boondocks and pick leaves and dig up roots and bulbs and stuff, why does that stuff work as medicine? You know, because they 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 concoct things out of that 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 heals people. And he wanted to know why and how it works. And so he, when I came down with a horrible kidney disease about 26 years ago, which this woman predicted, by the way. Really? She, yes, she predicted this. She said to David, she said to me well, at that session that I had in her little hut, she said, one day he's going to become very, very sick and it's going to try to sap his life away from him. And the only way he is going to be able to be healed is to go back to where he came from. Now, I didn't know what that meant. I do now. Sure. Because what happened was when I got ill, my friend, uh, the surgeon, when he was began to study the ways of the shaman in South Africa, he said, you know, I'm going back and I'm going to study. Why don't you come and make a film about this? And I thought, that's a terrific idea. I will do that. And he said, you know what? You can meet these people that I'm meeting and maybe, maybe, maybe they'll find a cure for you. I said, Dave, you are a surgeon. 
You've been trained at the best universities and academic institutions, including Stanford, and you're telling me to go and meet a witch doctor to get healed? And he said, yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you to do. <laughs> and uh, that's what I did. I went back with him and I met uh, a lot of amazing people who diagnosed you know, my kidney disease just as well as some of the best doctors that I have here in L.A., and, uh, you know, so, so the, the journey is amazing um, and, and, and their medicine works and their healing system works. You know, I, 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 I can tell you endless stories. It's all in the book. Um, one of the most extraordinary sessions I had um, during this, this healing session, particularly during the early days when I went back to South Africa, was I went with uh, my friend to a, a country which is now called Eswatini. Those days it was called Swaziland. Mm. And it's a mountain kingdom. It's a, it's a kingdom smack bang in the, in, in, on the edge of South Africa, in between South Africa and Mozambique. And it's the most beautiful part of the world. And, and, and there I met this amazing shaman who put me in touch with a very, very amazing man who gave me what, was, what they called a femba. And a femba is basically like, like an exorcism. And I, I went to the ceremony um, they had no idea what was wrong with me. They had no idea that I was ill. Mm. And when I went to this, this Fembo ceremony that I was advised to go to, you know, I was told to strip down to just a pair of underwear, uh, and sitting in this, in this hut with people around me beating drums. And this guy arrived dressed in, in like loincloth and rattles and beads. And he had become another entity. I had met I had met him prior to this event, but the night of the Femba, he'd become transformed into something something else. He had taken on the spirit. I think I, I kind of identified it as, as a hyena. He'd taken on the essence of a hyena. Mm. I have no idea why, but he went on, all, on, on, on hands and uh, all fours, you know, hands and feet, hands and on knees, and, and, and he crawled across this hut to me while the drumming was going on. And he began to smell my, my body all the way from my feet. I was sitting next to a fire in the middle of this hut. And he smelt me all the way from my legs up. And when he got to the area of where my kidneys are, first of all, on the left-hand side, he started to belt. He wanted to vomit. And he yelled out. And one of his assistants came running up with a barrel. And he vomited this absolutely horrific-looking slime into this barrel as though he'd extracted that from me. And then he smelt, you know, all, it was terrifying, a terrifying experience. It's frightening like I cannot tell you. This guy was you know, breathing very, very deeply. And then he started smelling down the, the right-hand side of my body. When he got to the kidney area, again, he started, he, he wanted to be ill. And the guy came running up with a bell and he belched into it again. And then, you know, that was it. And he basically, when it was all over, and he was talking Swazi. I had no idea it was translated to me afterwards. He stood over me like this and he said, your grandfather was here tonight. Now, I never met my grandfather. That's my father's father because he uh, died in Latvia long before I was born. He said, but your grandfather was here tonight and told me what to do and how to find out what was wrong with you. And that is how I learned of your illness. And uh, these are the things you must do to, 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 to overcome your illness. Well, you know, 26 years later, here I am, you know, I'm still, still going. It's amazing. Wow. Incredible. It, it, did you feel different after that experience? Like immediately after? 
I felt very, very strange. First of all, the whole the whole experience was very unsettling because it was frightening. You know, imagine being in a in a hut with nothing but a fire and drummers around you, and this this room is filled with smoke, and this man is is breathing heavily like like a wild animal, and uh, and and smelling you as though you know he was like a, like another entity. Mm. Uh, and so it was very, very, very disturbing. But when all this was over, and this took like a couple of hours, we were driving back uh, in this Land Rover on this really rutted road back to where we were staying. And and I suddenly said to Dad, I said, said, you know, I feel as though I feel as something cathartic has happened. Something has been taken from me. And I really felt as though he had removed some uh, dark energy or whatever it may have been from my system, you know. I told my nephrologist that back in LA, of course. He laughed his head off. But when I when the book came out and he read he read the whole story in the book, he said, now I understand exactly what you meant because you should have been on dialysis or been dead years ago. And now I know why you haven't. Wow. After you, you explained that to me. Yeah. I mean it, it was it was absolutely amazing. It was life life changing. Yeah. It's- Mm, clearly, because you're here to tell the story. That's just yeah, yeah. remarkable. So, um, yeah, I mean, those, those, those people are just absolutely extraordinary. So, you know, my life has been, uh, fortunately, it's been wonderful. I've had an extraordinary life. And, and you know, one of the things this, this woman told me uh, at that session, she said to David, she said, tell him he's, one day he's going to go to a place. It's a world. It's a world. She uses the word world. He's going to go to a world where there is no color. It is only white. I had no idea what that meant. You know, David says, you're going to go to a world where there's no color. It's a white, only a white place, white, only white color. What on earth was she talking about? And then we fast forward to the year 1990, and I'm doing a show for PBS um, uh, for a series called The Infinite Voyage on on, on television. And uh, the, 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 um, the mission was to go down to Antarctica to do some science research down there about climate change, the ozone hole, and are the oceans changing? And the only way to do that is to really go to a pristine place where there's no, there are no, there are no industries, there's no human population. You go down there and you put, and that's where you start seeing changes in the earth. Mm. And in the health of Mother Earth, you can see that down there because it's, you know, it's, it's a pure, clean, clean place. But if there's anything going wrong, it shows up in the Antarctic very, very quickly. Right. And so I was on a, a, an, an icebreaker, a scientific research ship with Norwegian crew, a bunch of American scientists and my, my own crew. And it was Christmas Eve on, uh, I think it was 1991. Uh, maybe it was 1990, or 90 or 91, Christmas Eve, and the captain, we were in the middle of, of an ocean of ice. It was surrounded by ice. And the captain said, we're going to stop the ship at midnight and have a party. <laughs> so, you know, I had a drink with the guys, and then I decided to put on my Parker jacket and go and sit up on the deck and just keep, I, I used to have keep cop- copious notes all, yeah. every time, always. And I went up on deck and I sat up there and, and, and there were penguins around us, you know, um, but it was all white. And I was sitting there with my notebook and I thought, how do I explain to the viewers back in the good old US what it's like to be in Antarctica in the middle of a world that is only white? It's, and then I suddenly 
realized, oh my God, that wow. woman saw this. It was like being in a translucent egg because the sky was white, the sea was white, everything was white. And she saw this. How did she know that? <laughs> you know? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it really is quite, quite amazing. In your feeling, your belief, how are people able to tap into this? What, what do you think it is that separates maybe these conduits from maybe normal human beings? Yeah, well, it's it's hard to explain. I, I I'm 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 one. Who, I'm still in awe and in wonderment uh, of all of this. But at the end of my book, I say, you know, what I've learned over many many years of working with many many different cultures all over the world and uh, in many different subjects and topics that I've made films about. I, I, I absolutely implicitly believe that there is some unifying field, call it a grid. The an analogy I use in the book is, is you know, the little, little bumper cars at the fairground, those dodgy, yeah. you know, with the aerial at the back touching the, the wires on top where, you, where it gets its power. I said, it's like being on one of those rides. Life is like that. And we all have one of those aerials connected to a field we're all connected to that like the dodgem cars are connected to an electrical field we're connected to a field of consciousness that unifies all of us we're all connected to that and if we know how to do that we can all be part of the same you know thought processes experiences we're all one whether you're and and the and the words i used was whether you're a person or a pony or a petunia we're all part of that grid. We're all part of that system. I absolutely believe that. And if we knew how to tap into that and use it, you know, we are universal beings. We aren't, you know, we're not little ants running around a little tiny piece of rock going around the sun. You know, we're part of a bigger system. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> no doubt in my mind. I love that. It was that, you know, the, the catalyst for you to, to want to share this information with people and what you've experienced? I had to do that. I had to, because it's just been such an extraordinary journey that I've learned so much that I wanted to share that with people because I wanted, you know, we live in such dark, troubling times and, and people begin to lose hope pretty quickly, uh, particularly with the pandemic and, and all of that going on and, you know, and, and, and just war and, uh, you know, the way the world works, it's hard, it's difficult. And people can easily get very, very negative and very, very tuned out. And um, I wanted to give them hope. And I wanted to give them a sense of knowing that there's more than just this. Whether you understand it or not, it's there. And I wanted to share my experiences with them, you know, and give people a little bit of an insight into how what I've experienced. I know a lot of people don't have that opportunity. Right. I have, I've been very fortunate. And so I, I felt an it, it was it was a need for me to share that with people. I had to, you know. Um, there's more than than there's more than we know, you know. There really is so much out there that it's pretty it's pretty amazing. Um, and I wanted to give people a sense of optimism as well. No matter how dark and troubling times are, you know, you what what is that thing that they used to sell in England? The poster, keep calm and carry on, you know. It's, it is so. Uh, we have to because there's more than just this, more than just now, <laughs> you know. 
this too will end, right? Says the bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I love that. I couldn't agree more. Well articulated too. And, and that optimism, but where do you, where do you find that from? Where, what, what's within you as an individual that you want to share that when you see that optimism that you want to share with others? You know, um, mainly from these experiences that I've had and the, my, my, my contacts with, uh, with shamanism and, and a lot of the topics and, uh, um, shows that I've made, for example, I did, um, I did a show, I forget which, uh, it was a cable company. I, it could have been A&E, um, or a history channel. One of those, I, I did a show some years back. Uh, the brief was, um, what happens to consciousness after the demise of the physical body? In other words, what happens to you after you die? And and the network were absolutely definite about this. They said, we don't want any haunted houses and ooga booga things that go bump in the night. We want hard science. Go and find the science. What happens to the consciousness that you've had as an individual when your body's dead? Does that also disappear? You know, as your bones will wither and as your flesh will turn to dust, what happens to your consciousness? Does it go anywhere? Does it survive? And, you know, I met some extraordinary people. There was a guy called Robert John who ran the, at Princeton University, he ran a a unit called PEAR, P-E-A-R, which stood for the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Unit. Now, this guy was an engineer. And in his experience, but a very, very open-minded man, uh, his vision of the world was, you know, infinitely wider than most of us could ever be. And yet he was a nitty-gritty nuts and bolts guy. He was an engineer, but he was open-minded. And uh, he, and through the engineering side of the world, little uh, remote-controlled cars on a tabletop or a fountain or the ticking of a pendulum. He wanted to know whether we as humans could influence those items, those little objects. And he did research for decades. And at the end of all of that, he he was absolutely convinced of the fact that thought in itself is an energy force. And you you cannot destroy energy. Energy only changes into another form. It doesn't disappear. It doesn't go away. And that led him into into a field of research that was absolutely mind-boggling. And you know, and here's a here's a here's here's an engineer talking to me. You know, the, his final interview with me was, "We are here. We are here for a purpose. We are here for a learning purpose." Um, I know. You know, he said, "Consciousness is not contained within the synapses of your brain. It's not at all sparks firing at on the edges of nerves and." in a neural network, it's much greater than that. Because one of the experiments he did was, you know, influencing random number generators, you know, things that then you get numbers. Yeah. And he would have people influencing these objects in the room next door and in other continents. They would set aside a specific time and he would issue instructions to the person sitting in like Sydney, Australia, and they would start this r- random number generator going in Princeton in New Jersey. And he'd say to the guy, I want you to make more nines come up than any of the other numbers. And guess what? 60, 70% of the time it worked. 
people could influence this 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 device from remote from a remote situation like that. And he said it just opens my mind to the possibilities of what is out there and what consciousness really is all about. It's not something invisible that you can't see. It's it's real, you know. And I while we were making that show, I met a number of people who had had uh, near death experiences. They they'd been revived from death. And all of them, without any hesitation, told me um, that you don't die. And sim- they all had very, very similar experiences. But it's all very well talking about uh, about you know adults who do that. But there was an extraordinary story about two mothers who both lost their sons. And we tell the story in the show. And each of these mothers who did not know one another dreamt about each other's son who had made friends with their son. And that was coming to them in dreams. And these two, these two sons, the one going back to his mother and the other one going back to, to, to his mother, had this other guy with him. And they were each other's sons. And uh, after it, it was a very, very long-winded uh, way of getting to, 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 the, to the end result of the story. But I actually filmed these two mothers meeting each other for the first time. And when they got together, they brought photograph albums of their sons with them. And they showed, and they said, "Yeah, that's that's the kid I saw with my son in my dream. Your son, you know." Wow. Yeah, amazing. And then um, I met um, um, a specialist, a child specialist in uh, in Seattle, who worked with children, and these were all kids under the age of seven who had near death experiences. They were clinically dead for you know some of them as long as a couple of minutes, and then revived, resuscitated, brought back to life again. And these children did not know each other. This guy was doing research, including with other uh, pediatricians who were working in this field. Hmm. These kids, as they grew up, they started drawing pictures, and the pictures were very similar of, you know, of tunnels, of lights at the end of tunnels, and of entities in this room with them. And these entities were sometimes seen as angels, sometimes as mommy and daddy, sometimes as grandma. Uh, they didn't know, these kids didn't know who or what these entities were, but they were, they, were, they were figures. And they were all given the choice to come back, you know, to, to, to mommy and daddy, to go back to the world, or to go down the tunnel and to go and be with God was what, what these kids uh, and they said, well, no, we'd rather go back to mommy and daddy. And, and, and these entities were saying, your mom, your, your parents are missing you. They want you back. And then these kids made the decision to say, all right, we'll go back. You know, and, and they were resuscitated after these experiences. And they all told similar stories and painted and drew similar images. Now, you know, that tells you something that, uh, you know, there's more out there than we know. This is not life is not the way it seems at all it's 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 totally different so where does one muster the uh the uh the the abilities or whatever else you want to call it that define you know what i now believe in i mean it's just it's just learning about the way the world works and i think one of the one of one of the uh, the most meaningful paths for me uh <clears throat> has been my interaction with animals oh Mm-hmm. Um, the way we treat animals today in this world is beyond atrocious and beyond unforgivable. Agreed. Uh, and, and it troubles me terribly. And I think that we are 
on a path to making this eventually come right. We have to rectify this. We we treat them as entities. We treat them as as uh, you know as 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 products. It's it's just appalling. And and my relationship with animals has been absolutely ex- extraordinary. I've I've had amazing experiences with with, with animals. Emotion on an on an emotional level, and I'll tell you an interesting thing. What, another one of the stories this little old lady told me. She said, uh, "She said one day he will be working. She didn't say what kind of work I was doing. I will be working, and I will be in the bush." This was her description. I will be in the bush. Mm. I didn't know that. I assumed Africa, but I had no idea. And a, a great beast will try to kill him, but it won't. It will not do that, but he he must be careful. Uh, she, 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 you know, scared the living daylights out of me. I had no idea what she was talking about. Anyway, so we cut to the year 1967, and I'm in South Africa. Um, I'd, I'd been to Canada. I'd worked in Canada. I'd worked in the U.S. I went back to South Africa for a while, and and I was I was hired as a cameraman to go on a safari with the guy who invented the hula hoop. Oh, <laughs> made a lot of money out of that. Yeah, he did the hula hoop and the frisbee, right? I think frisbee as well. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Whammo toys. That that's that, <laughs> uh, Spud Millen. Yep. And Nutty Putty. Do you remember? I don't know if yeah. you went. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so you know, he and two of his buddies decided to go on safari to Mozambique. He was the nicest guy you could possibly hope to meet. But I and I was I was I was approached by by a film company. Then, uh, do you want to go on the safari? They they have this. It's 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 going to be properly mounted. It's it's a very very fancy safari. They want a film made about it. Would would you be interested in doing it? Well, I was not interested in shooting me in shooting animals at all because it all that 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 always you know horrified me. But I thought I'll 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 take the job only because I want to know. What drives people to do this? What is it that makes people get fun out of shooting and killing wild animals for fun? Where's mm-hmm. the sport and the fun in that? That's why I took the job. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, I, I, uh, I joined these, these guys in, in Mozambique. This was before Mozambique, which at that time was a Portuguese province. Yeah. Now it's independent, of course. And, and, and in those days, um, that's before the Civil War wreaked havoc with the country it's in a, it's in a mess now but it's an absolutely beautiful wonderful part of the world and it was rich in wildlife and we went to an area in the middle of the country for the safari it was mounted uh, very very fancy we had trucks and land rovers and all kinds of things and these three guys came out from la uh the inventor of the hula hoop spud and his two buddies one was a lawyer the other one was a stockbroker and um and you know, um, and and um, they all had licenses to shoot all kinds of animals. Um, and one day, it was the turn of one of these guys to to. to it was his turn to to shoot an elephant. And I, you know, I'd seen it done once already on on the safari, and it just appalled me. And I would say so at night, you know, the because at night you'd go back to your base camp and, you know, lots of vodka and martinis would be poured. And I'd have 
raging arguments with these guys about why are they doing this? And I thought, yeah, listen, then, you know, they always shut me down, including, you know, the, the, the leaders of the safari. Oh, please, we've been doing it for millions of years, you know. You, you're, you're, just a, you're just a tree hugger, forget about it. Have another drink, you know. So uh, <laughs> that's how. <laughs> but anyway, this particular day, it was this particular man's turn to, sh- to shoot his elephant. And, and the white hunter <clears throat> said to him, picked out a, an old bull, in the in this herb herd, he said, "That's that's the one you uh, you should make sure that you get a clean shot right here between the eyes. Um, wait until he turns towards you, and that's when you pull the trigger, not before that." Um, and so I position myself right behind him, so I have him in my frame, and in the background is the herd and that elephant, and you know, and he shoots, and he misses, and the herd went crazy. They went scattering in every direction, except for one female elephant, a cow. She didn't move. And we said, we re- realized why, because next to her was a baby. We didn't see the baby. She was guarding her baby. She thought her baby was in danger. And she thought that this man with a gun, they were aware of what hunters do. Yeah. So this man with a gun was, get, was going to kill her baby. And she turned towards him and she started to charge. Whoa. There was no way that you could stop this elephant, you know. She so here he is still in my frame. I'm behind him, and this elephant is running towards us, and the ground is shaking us like an earthquake. Oh wow. And I'm hearing from behind me, run, 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 you know, says the, the white hunters. Run. I couldn't move. I the, the camera was big, it was heavy, it was film those days, yeah. a big thing, with a guy next to me with a battery pack, you know, p- powering this thing. I couldn't move and neither could this, the hunter who'd missed, but at some point he left my friend. He just dashed out of it. I couldn't move. And then I heard when this elephant must've been about maybe 12, 15 feet away from me, I heard bam mm-hmm. in my, next to me. And the white hunter had shot her right between the eyes. She wasn't after me. She was after him. And she collapsed in front of me, mm-hmm. maybe 10 feet away from me. And her eyes locked with mine. Mm-hmm. And she crumpled down to the ground. And I made a connection with that elephant at that moment. I knew that she, the animosity was not for me. And I felt her death. And I know that she knew that. And as she looked at me and she stared at me and she, she slowly collapsed and died, her eyes glazed over, her eyes were locked with mine. Her soul and mine became one. And it has been so ever since for the last, what, 50 years almost? That elephant has been with me throughout my life as as a protective uh, uh, force, if you like. And I'll tell you an interesting thing. When I went to see a lot of uh, of these other shamans, and I'm talking now about uh, the, the, from 2000 onwards, I'd gone back to Africa for the healing that I went on. to, to find a cure for my kidney illness. Every time a shaman threw the bones, they would always say, what is this Ndlovu? Ndlovu is a Zulu word, which means elephant. What is this elephant in your bones? Why is the elephant here? Every time. <laughs> wow. They would see her in my presence, you know? And I kid you not, that elephant and I, have been spiritually connected ever since. 
and it's been overwhelming. And so, you know, the animal kingdom and I, I, I think we're all the same. I mean, you know, the fact that we can make tools and rockets and, 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 and amazing things and, you know, cell phones does not make us better or than the animal kingdom. We're just different and we have to learn to respect them more than we do the way we go about our business now. Uh, and I think for me, <clears throat> that's one of the learning curves of this lifetime for me, I think is all about that is about learning compassion. That's what we all have to learn to, to do. We have to learn, you got to learn to be compassionate towards all life. And uh, it's been an amazing force in my life. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, with, with where you grew up in the time that you grew up such a polarizing time you know we're seeing some of that even today with the polarization and so your message of learning compassion is probably one of the most crucial and critical messages that anyone could share or learn yeah yeah i mean you know look at uh wherever you look now you know we're always facing one another, you know, all over the world now. You you just see this, and we've got to we've got to go beyond that. We've got to we've got to be beyond being enemies and you know mistrusting one another and all that. We've we've got to we've 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 got to get we've got to get beyond that. Otherwise, we're stuck in this place of darkness. We've got to get beyond that. How do you think some ways we can get beyond that? In your opinion, what do you think we can do? One of the things I think that that might help, um, and I always look to the younger generation because um, the younger generation is, you know, these are the guys who are going to call the shots tomorrow. Young young people, the world of tomorrow belongs to them, uh, and and I think that young people need to be exposed more to nature. We're all stuck in cities and freeways with our little pads and electronic devices. We've got to get beyond that. We've got to learn to, we've got to get out there and smell the pine trees. We've got to climb that mountain. We've got to go down the river in a canoe. Kids don't do that anymore. There are very, very few children who live in cities who, who are exposed to nature. You know, maybe once or twice they might be taken to a zoo. But they got to get out into nature and learn what nature is all about. Nature is the not, not only the most healing uh, um power in the world but it's 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 the most it's the most forceful teaching power in the world it it, it teaches them to be respectful it teaches them you know that, that 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 the world is an amazing place and nature itself is an extraordinarily complicated wonderful system and we don't know that you know we we're so detached from all of that you know it's like it's like the animal kingdom what do we think when an animal to most when you go into a supermarket and you see little plastic bags with you know, uh, buffalo wings in it. No, no one thinks that that's a chicken that was murdered, you know, or uh, so we're detached from nature and we've got to get back to some kind of connection with nature. And I think getting children to do that is the most critical thing that we can possibly do. Wow. I love that. I couldn't agree more. That's very well put. What's your hope with, especially, you know, how film led you to the mysterious world of the African shaman. It's like forever in your veins to me is it's trying to shine a light on what you're saying too, you know, and just that back to nature, but also just that compassion piece and working together, but also that there's a, there's a higher 
energy field going on around us. What's your yeah. hope uh, with, I guess, with people, with the takeaway that they're going to get from after reading your book? Well, I think, I think hope and optimism and, 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 and an awareness of the fact that there is more than what lies at the garden gate. There's way more than what lies at your front door. There's, there's so much more that, that's out there. Um, and I think that um, one, of, one, of our, one of our most precious uh, capacities is a sense of curiosity. We need to be curious. We need to want to know more. You know, we are, unfortunately, you know, we are, we are, we are absolutely overwhelmed with so much content from so many devices now you know, and programming. People don't think anymore. They don't go out to look for things anymore. It's all available. So you just mm. turn on a button, you press, you know, click here, click there, click that. And it's available, but we have to we have to cultivate a sense of curiosity. Never stop being curious. I've always told all my kids that. I said, you have to learn one new thing every single day of your life. And, and if you're not doing that, you're not living your life to the full. And, and I think it's important because you know I, I I certainly try to do that. And if most people are given that opportunity, I'm sure they will. You know, um, instead of just following the pack, you know, be curious. You you need to find out more. You need to know more. When you go outside at night, the first thing the first thing you need to do, I keep telling my kids, look up, look up at the sky. Look up at the sky, and be aware of the fact that you are part of something unbelievably vast, and we're all part of that. And you got to feel that, and you got to let that drive you. You know, and they've been grateful for that because they've done that. Wow, that's beautiful. I love that. Wow. Well, I'm 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 glad that you're you were able to plant those seeds for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, they they still laugh at me. You know, Dad, you and your silly ways. But thanks for telling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where can folks get your book? Where can they find you on the internet? Uh, I, they can go to my website. Which is which is my name, uh, Lionel Friedberg. You want to spell it out? Um, sure. It's L I O N E L F R I E D B E R G. That's my name, Lionel Friedberg. So www.lionelfriedberg.com uh, is my website. They can go there, and all three, all, all of my books are on on my website, and um, there are links to Barnes and Noble or uh, to Amazon. Dot com. The book is available uh, at most bookstores, mm. and it's available on Amazon.com. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's available right now. In fact, I went to the uh, to the bookstore the other day to look around, and I I was happy to see it on the shelf. And I said, selling. I said, yeah, it is. And I thought, oh, that's good. You know, that's great. <laughs> yeah, and I, I really feel that people will 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 derive something out of it. It's got nothing to do with my ego. I can I I can assure you of that. I I wanted to give. It's a, it's about that. Yeah, I and again, it's I, I think that's very evident, and even just our conversation, just uh, who you are. Now, with everything, obviously, with all the filmmaking, everything you've done, you know, now with your authorship. Do you feel that you're maybe a little bit more passionate about one versus the other, or how do you perceive this? 
You're talking about my career wise. Yeah, your career. Like, do you feel like maybe you've moved on from films? Do you feel like maybe you're more passionate about your, you know, your writing? How, how are you feeling with all yeah, well, this? Well, now I, you know, listen, I'm in my late seventies, as I think I told you, and you know, I, I, I am, and so um, being on a movie set is 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 hard work. It's 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 tough, and you mm-hmm. need to have a lot of energy, and you need to be young. You got to you got to be you got to have that going on your uh, for you if, 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 if you making movies is, is one of the hardest things in the world to do it's an awful lot of work but it's the best job in the world mm-hmm. um so you know those days are probably beside, behind me now so mm-hmm. uh but uh i still work every day i write and um i'm now starting a uh, i'm into a, a a novel this is my first novel oh I hope will will become a screenplay and hopefully will become a sci-fi movie. Um, so that's what I'm working on right now. I, my last book came out a couple of months ago. It was a history of aviation. Oh. Um, so yeah. So I'm, you know, I've got lots of interests and and uh, so I, I don't stop for a moment. I got you got to keep working. And um, uh, so writing now is 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 probably most of what I do. Traveling at the moment is is tough because of the pandemic situation and so on. And uh, unfortunately, but there's still a great big wide world out there to explore. And but you know you you don't have to travel thousands of miles. You know, just get out of the city, go to you know go to go to the countryside. That's 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 enough. Folks can do that very easily, as I, I often do. I get into my car and I drive north of here. I go into the Mojave Desert and I you know, oh. in the desert and it's wonderful. And one of the best things to do is to go out into the desert and at night as the sun goes down and the sky starts lighting up, you know, it's like you're in a planetarium. It's incredible. <laughs> wow. uh, so I think, uh, you know, I think being creative is, uh, is, is, is important even if one, you know, even if one makes things or uh, as an artist or uh, whatever, whatever, whatever you can do, you know, to create something, I think it's very important to be able to do that. I agree with that. I think it's, it's almost this inherent nature within humans to just want to make things and create things and express ourselves sometimes through different sure. mediums. Yeah, absolutely. What are some other passion pieces you think might make it to some pages that you write? Well, I don't know. This, this novel is going to take a year of my life. I know that, you know, okay. so that's uh, one, one, one at a time. Let's All right. <laughs> get through that. <laughs> that's great and, and how'd you how'd you come to what this novel is going to be about a long process to get to this point you think or that's yeah, been a long time i've this 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 idea has been bouncing around in my head for a long long time i don't want to talk too much about nope. it nope um, <laughs> but, but uh um i have to make this become a reality and uh i have a son who lives in london and uh he's got a a, a movie inside him and i said right Here's the deal. You make that movie happen and I'll make my novel happen. And let's see who gets the finishing post first. So we're, we're in a race to see who gets it. <laughs> nice. Nice little healthy family competition. I like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Well, that's great. And uh, folks can find you on Instagram. Is that correct, Lionel? Yes, I'm on Instagram and I'm on uh, Facebook. And uh, yeah, uh, it's, and it, you can access all of these things awesome. by, by my website or, uh, or directly on Instagram, Lionel Friedberg. Uh, if they look for my Facebook page, which is, which is quite nice uh, because it's got a lot of stuff there, all the latest news and whatever else about, about, my, about my books, it's, it's Lionel Friedberg author. Put, put the author with it. I have got another Facebook page which is mainly filled with animal stuff. I have every animal issue, any animal welfare issue on the planet that I know about is on that website. So if you get on that website, that's not the one that. But Lionel Friedberg author is the is the other one which talks more about my work. <laughs> that's awesome. I, I I just I love your uh, you know your, your pro animal stance. It's just so wonderful and refreshing. Oh, we have to be that way. I mean, you know, really, we, 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 we've got to fix the situation. We just, you know, uh, the way we treat the animal kingdom is just unforgivable. Um, what can I say? Yeah, no, I, I think you articulated it quite well. So I appreciate that. Um, and then there, you know, there are a lot of other people that I think recently have come to, you know, even changing their diet and seeing how that's affecting our planet and affecting themselves and um, sure. consciously. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we talk about, you know, and they have these enormous conferences. They have this enormous conference in Glasgow, you know, and, and everybody goes there and they talk about what comes out of the tailpipe of a car and what comes out of the gas, you know, what comes out of the gas tank of the gas station. It's not only about that. It's about what one eats. It's, what, it's about what one puts on one's plate that makes a difference to climate change as well, because animal agriculture is one of the biggest culprits in terms of, of, of climate change. You know, the, the production of methane from the number of cattle that we produce uh, in the meat industry is, is absolutely horrific. And then there's this, this transporting these poor creatures around and, you know, getting them to slaughterhouses and these, these factory farms. I mean, it, the, there's, there's, there's a lot of the, the, the polluting groundwater. It goes on and on and on and on. And it's never talked about. Mm. Never talked about. It's not an issue, and that's an issue that has to come onto the agenda of, of when we talk about climate change. It's about diet as well as, you know, I've been, and I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet here at all. I've been vegan for decades now, and prior to that, I was a vegetarian for, you know, since I was a teenager. But it really is important uh, that we get away from animal agriculture because it's, 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 it's completely destroying the planet. The Amazon is being burnt down to, 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 to make room to grow soybeans, not for humans to eat, but to feed to animals, you know, and it's a, it's, it's a waste of energy to do that. If we ate the, the soybeans directly, we'd get more energy out of it than by converting it through a cow, you know, we're losing 90% of the energy in the protein of, of, of the soybean. And people don't think about that because, you know, con to convert a, a jungle to a soybean to a cow and then to a steak, you're wasting energy. Right. And using up some resources in the process. Yeah, sure. And, you know, we're losing, we're losing the lungs of the earth. I mean, mm. you know, the jungles are, are what, what, what produce oxygen. It absorbs carbon dioxide. You know, the, even the Congo now, they are going to, within a few months, I believe, um, remove the the regulations about about um, about um, you know cutting down a, a, a lumber in the in, in the Congo basin and that that's that's a disaster. 
what's happened to the Indonesian rainforests and the rainforests of, you know, uh, of Asia, of, of South America. It's just, it's just horrific. And we really have to, people must become conscious of this. Um, and look, look beyond what, what, what's, what's on the supermarket shelf. You know, our, our greatest vote, our most potent and powerful vote, and, and our most potent way of making an impact on the world is at the cash register of the supermarket. I couldn't agree more with that statement. What do you buy? I mean, it's, it's about that, you know. Wow. Agreed with you. Absolutely on that. That's huge. Wow. Thank you for opening minds. Thank you for opening hearts. Thank you for sharing your stories. Um, people need to check out the book forever in my veins. Um, and this has been a pleasure, Lionel. Sincerely. Thank you so very much for this. It's been a, an honor to be with you, Jay. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for having me. And there you have it. I can't thank Lionel enough for just being the human being that he is and just sharing some time and some energy and some compassion with us here today. We talked about so many wonderful things in that episode and learned so much in that episode. We talked about Lionel's newest book, Forever In My Veins, how film led me to the mysterious world of the African shaman. It is a remarkable testament to that personal journey of one that goes within and without there is so much within that book that I would implore everyone to take a moment and check that out. If you're looking to find Lionel Friedberg, you can find him at lionelfriedberg.com as well as on Instagram. And as he said, you can find Lionel Friedberg on Facebook at Lionel Friedberg Author. Again, thank you for all that you do, Lionel. You truly do so much for our global community. If you enjoy this podcast or maybe another episode of the podcast, and you know somebody else who would enjoy this content, take a moment and share it with somebody. And if you wouldn't mind, leave us a rating. We're still a new podcast, and that's how you can help other people find out about us. If you're watching this, take a moment and hit that like button. Maybe even leave a comment below. And let us know what your thoughts are on some of this content. You can find us on Instagram at itd.jcosta, as well as on Twitter at itd underscore jcosta. We can't thank you enough, each and every one of you, for taking the time to support this podcast. Until next time, take care of one another and keep thinking for yourself.